Behind prayer lies not only faith in God's power to do whatever He chooses, but behind prayer also lies faith in God's wisdom to choose what is best. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hello again, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom will conclude his current series with part six of Prayer for All Seasons. As we've discovered throughout this series, the theme in James chapter 5, verses 13 through 18, is clear. It's all about prayer prayer in all seasons, in all circumstances of life, and prayer with full trust in the power of God to respond. Today, Tom will continue his look at how the prayer of a faithful man availeth much, as the King James translation puts it, and the effect that one righteous man had on an entire nation not as a model for your faith, but as a marker of the type of faithfulness God desires. Tom will also provide a few practical ways that you can pursue and grow in the practice of prayer in your own life today. Prepare your heart now to receive God's Word as we join Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed. Here's what Baal worship promised. Two things. This was its, its attraction. Economic success in an agricultural society, your crops would grow and prosper, and secondly, sexual satisfaction in whatever way you chose. And it was all part of the worship of the God. Those are the promises of Baal worship. And the people of Israel were seduced by that from the very beginning. And Ahab bought into this pagan idolatry with a vengeance. Notice what verse 31 says. It came about as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he married Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbel, king of the Zidonians. In other words, here's his first sin. Ahab married the Baal-worshipping daughter of a man whose name means Baal exists. But it didn't stop with marriage. It goes on to say at the end of verse 31 that Ahab went to serve Baal and worshipped him. It wasn't just a marriage of convenience. Ahab bought into this hook, line, and sinker. In fact, he even built a temple to Baal. Verse 32, So he erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. He was all out into Baal worship. And then verse 33 said, Ahab also made the Asherah. Thus Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel than all the kings of Israel who were before him. Now, I'm not going to go into all the details, but let me give you a rough sketch of Canaanite religion because you really have to understand it to appreciate this illustration in this passage. El was the chief Canaanite god. He was the chief deity. He was the head of the pantheon of gods. His wife, El's wife and sister, was Asherah. She commonly is represented as a nude prostitute. She was the goddess of love, fertility, and war or cruelty. She is known as the mother goddess. She has 70 children who make up the Canaanite pantheon. And Asherah, El's consort, Asherah's presence was symbolized, her power was symbolized by the evergreen tree. 
And eventually, in place of evergreens, they could set up wooden poles or groves, as they were called in the Old Testament, that would represent her. They'd be put on high hills so that you could be closer to the gods to commune with them. And there was a shrine where rituals could be performed. What I want you to see is Ahab bought into Canaanite religion completely and fully. He promoted the worship of idols in Israel. Verse 34 tells us just how bad the ethical living of the people was. There was a total disregard for the Word of God. In his days, that in Ahab's days, Hael the Bethlehite built Jericho. He laid its foundations with the loss of Abiram his firstborn. He set up its gates with the loss of his youngest son, Segub, according to the Word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua the son of Nun. In other words... There was absolutely no reference to the Word of God whatsoever. In Joshua chapter 6, verse 26, Joshua had said, Cursed be anyone who builds or tries to rebuild Jericho. Hael comes along in his arrogant pride and decides that that's exactly what he's going to do. He absolutely ignored the Word of God. That was the climate of the times. The name of Yahweh was forgotten, and the people of Israel instead worshipped Baal. These were profane, ungodly, idolatrous times. In fact, in 1 Kings 18, verse 19, we learn that on the government payroll were 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah. On the government payroll in Israel, 850 prophets of the Canaanite religion. In fact... Scripture tells us, in fact, God Himself tells Elijah that there were only 7,000 people left in Israel who had not given in to the worship of Baal. And suddenly, in that climate, into the palace of Ahab and Jezebel, the chief sponsors of the Canaanite religion in Israel, thunders a man who is announced as Elijah. You know what Elijah's name is in Hebrew? Eliyahu. My God is Yahweh. Imagine the disruption that brought that day in the palace. Chapter 17, verse 1, Now Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the settlers of Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord, as Yahweh, the God of Israel lives before whom I stand, surely there shall be neither rain nor dew these years except by my word. Here's why James chooses this incident, and Elijah. He chooses Elijah and this specific incident as an illustration of two facts about prayer. This is going to illustrate for us two basic facts about prayer. Fact number one, the power of prayer to invoke God's chastening. There is inherent power in prayer to invoke or to invite God's chastening on those who are disobedient. Back to James 5, verse 17. Elijah prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. So he prayed, and then he announces to Ahab, this is how it's going to be. Now, what's going on here? Well, God had threatened back in the very beginning in the Pentateuch. He had threatened to withhold the necessary rain and dew for Israel's crops. And remember, it was an agricultural society, so that's where its success lay. If the people were unfaithful to Him and if they worshipped idols. In Deuteronomy chapter 11, Deuteronomy chapter 11, 
and verse 16, we read, Beware that your hearts are not deceived and that you do not turn away and serve other gods and worship them, or the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and He will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain and the ground will not yield its fruit. In Deuteronomy 28, we read the same basic point. Deuteronomy 28 and verse 23 The heaven which is over your head shall be bronze, and the earth which is under you iron. The Lord will make the rain of your land powder and dust. From heaven it shall come down on you until you are destroyed. Elijah knew those passages. He understood that when God's people departed from him, God had promised physical chastening. And in light of those passages, Elijah prayed. According to James, who, of course, was taught by Jesus himself, Elijah prayed that there would be no rain and no dew. In fact, James tells us he prayed earnestly. That expression is the translation of a Greek expression that literally means, with prayer he prayed. It could refer to intensity in prayer, as it's translated in the New American Standard, he prayed earnestly. Or it could simply mean that he prayed, and that's all he did. I think that's more likely what it means. We are to pray with intensity and earnestly. Scripture teaches us that. We're to pray without ceasing. We're to pray with all our hearts. But I think in this context, Alec Motyer is right when he writes, the meaning is not his fervency, nor even his frequency of prayer, but that he just prayed that and nothing more. Think about this. All Elijah did was pray, and it didn't rain, and there was no dew. For, according to First Kings, about three years, and specifically, according to James, three years and six months. Jesus uses the same time frame in Luke chapter 4, verse 25. Think for a moment about how devastating three years and six months of no rain would be on an agricultural society. It's bad enough in Texas where we've had a little drought for a couple of years. Imagine if all of our livelihoods were connected to the growth of crops. It was absolutely devastating. But there was more in the lack of rain than that. There was a greater message. You see, it was also a direct attack on the worship of Baal. Remember, El is the chief deity. Asherah, his wife and consort and sister. They had 70 children. One of those children is Baal. And Baal is the most significant deity by far in the Canaanite pantheon. Why is that? Because Baal was the god of rain and storms. The Canaanite culture, like the Israelite one, was agricultural. And so they were totally dependent on rain. And so it was crucial that you have a right connection with Baal. And if you were a Baal worshiper, you believed that your economic prosperity, your good crops, your large flocks, all were because of Baal's goodness. Elijah comes on the scene. My God is Yahweh. And he says, Yahweh will hold the rain. You see, Elijah wanted Ahab and Jezebel and all Israel to know that Yahweh, not Baal, is the God of rain and storm and weather. So he prays in response to the promise and threats of the Word of God, and God sends a devastating physical chastening on the people of Israel, all in response to prayer. Have you ever thought about that? That 
prayer has within it the power to invoke or invite God's chastening on the person who is living in unrepentant sin. I've seen this very personally. A number of years ago, while I lived in California, I knew a man who was a godly man with a long record of faithfulness to the Lord. But as he grew older, he began to tolerate some dangerous thoughts and behaviors in his life. Things that exposed him to serious sin and to the very real risk of undermining his reputation and the reputation of Christ, more importantly. And so those around him privately confronted him with their concerns, but they were absolutely, completely rebuffed. So they began to pray, and part of their prayer was this, Lord, use whatever means you have to to keep him from destroying his life and the lives of those around him, even if it means taking his life prematurely within a short period of time. This man was diagnosed with terminal cancer. And within a couple of years, he was with the Lord. This is deadly serious. Prayer has the capacity, as it did with Elijah, to invoke the chastening of God upon the person who is unrepentant. Those who are concerned can pray that God would bring that chastening. That's what Paul did. You remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 5, his concern for that Corinthian man who was involved in the incestuous relationship. He said, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. I'm more concerned about his soul than I am what happens to him in this life. This is the kind of circumstance that James is describing. A believer, because of unrepentant sin, is suffering from divine chastening in the form of a serious illness. But the main point of James' illustration is not to show the power of prayer to invoke divine chastening. Rather, the main point of his illustration is the power of prayer to bring an end to physical chastening when there is repentance. Back in James chapter 5, verse 18, then he prayed again. He prayed the first time and brought chastening. He prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Turn back to 1 Kings again. 1 Kings 18.1 God, after many days, spoke to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the face of the earth. God says, The time is coming soon when I am going to bring rain. But what I want you to see in chapter 18 is that that rain did not come until there was repentance. You remember what happens in 1 Kings 18, the confrontation on the top of Mount Carmel between Elijah and the prophets of Baal. Watch how they respond. Verse 36 of 1 Kings 18. Again, you remember the prophets of Baal have tried to call down fire and consume the altar to no avail. Verse 36 says, At the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, today let it be known to you, let it be known rather, that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Yahweh, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Yahweh, are God, and that you have turned their heart back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. When all the people saw it, watch their response. Remember, these are Baal-worshipping people. 
They fell on their faces and they said, Yahweh, He is God. Yahweh, He is God. And their repentance takes action. Verse 40, Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Do not let one of them escape. So they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slew them there. The people of God recognizing again Yahweh is the true God. And notice God's response and Elijah's response to their repentance. Verse 41, Now Elijah said to Ahab, Go up and eat and drink, for there is the sound of the roar of a downpour. So Ahab went up to eat and drink. But Elijah went up to the top of Carmel, and he crouched down on the earth and put his face between his knees. Here is Elijah praying. On the top of Mount Carmel, he's praying. And he said to his servant, Go up now, look toward the sea. And he went up and looked and said, There is nothing. And he said, Go back seven times. And it came about at the seventh time that he said, Well, it's not much, but behold, there's a cloud as small as a man's hand coming up from the sea. There's a tiny little cloud on the horizon. And Elijah said, Go up, say to Ahab, Prepare your chariot and go down so that the downpour doesn't stop you. In a little while, the sky grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a deluge. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. What I want you to see here is that in response to the repentance of the people, Elijah prayed and the physical chastening on the land for three and a half years was removed and the rain came. Elijah's prayer brought an end to God's physical chastening on Israel. That is why James chose this illustration from the life of Elijah. You see the analogy? Just as God responded to Elijah's prayer and removed the divine chastening from the people of Israel after they repented. So in James 5, God will respond to the prayer of the elders and will remove His divine chastening from the repentant, seriously ill believer. There is power in prayer. Here are three very basic commitments I encouraged us all to make when we completed our study on the Lord's Prayer. Number one, and let me urge you to remake these, resolve to pursue these again. Number one, deliberately schedule times each day to pray. Don't wait for prayer to happen. Make it happen. I, I encourage you to consider a modified form of what John Calvin urges us to do, and that is pray within one hour of waking. Pray when you begin the work of the day. Pray before each meal. And pray before you go to bed. Deliberately choose to make sure that you set aside time to pray at each of those junctures. When you get up, before you begin the day's work, whatever that is, before each meal, don't make it a passing acknowledgement to God, but pray and before you go to bed. Secondly, at least one time each day, follow the pattern of the Lord's Prayer, flowing through each of those six categories that we learned about. And number three, Schedule time at least once a week to pray with another Christian. We learned in our study of the Lord's Prayer that prayer is to be a corporate thing as well as an individual thing. Maybe it's your friend or your roommate or your spouse or your family or your ministry partner or your home fellowship group, but make it a deliberate point to pray together with other Christians at least once a week. 
Those are some very basic commitments, but we must make them. You see, prayer is to the believer and to the believer's life what breathing is to our physical life. One author described the power of prayer in these words. Prayer has divided seas, rolled up flowing rivers, made flinty rocks gush into fountains, quenched flames of fire, muzzled lions, disarmed vipers and poisoned, marshaled the stars against the wicked, stopped the course of the moon, arrested the sun in its rapid race across the sky, burst open iron gates, released souls from eternity, conquered the strongest devils, commanded legions of angels down from heaven. Prayer has bridled and chained the raging passions of man and routed and destroyed vast armies of proud, daring, blustering atheists. Prayer has brought one man from the bottom of the sea and carried another in a chariot of fire to heaven. What has prayer not done? John Blanchard puts it this way, prayer works. Or to put it more accurately, God works through prayer. It is one of the means of grace He uses to bring about His sovereign purposes in the world. Ever thought about prayer that way? The same God who decreed what would be the ends also decreed the means through which those ends would be accomplished. And that includes our prayer. When we pray, we become part of God's sovereign eternal plan. Here is the grounds for our confidence in prayer. Look at what God did in answer to Elijah's prayer. Think about that. In answer to one man's prayer, God changed the entire hydrological cycle for a portion of the globe for three and a half years. But don't misunderstand. That doesn't mean that God will always respond to believing prayer with our own private miracle. Most of the people who pray in the Scriptures don't get a miracle. We don't pray because God must give us a miracle, but because He can and will do what He knows is best. I think Alec Motyer is right. Listen carefully. When he says, very often, the really striking things the Bible records, like Elijah's prayer for rain, are intended to give a foundation to our faith rather than a model for our expectations. In other words, don't expect God to work some miracle for you. He can do that. But don't expect that. Instead, let the fact that He did that for Elijah serve as an encouragement for you to pray. Behind prayer lies not only faith in God's power to do whatever He chooses, but behind prayer also lies faith in God's wisdom to choose what is best. Truly, James wants us to know, folks, that prayer is for all seasons. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed. And that concludes our current series, Prayer for All Seasons. Join us next time for a brand new series as Tom once again takes us to God's Word. And Tom, before we end our time together today, how about sharing a closing thought with us? You know, Bill, I can't really stress enough those practical ideas that I shared at the end. I can tell you that those have been revolutionary in my own life, and it's so important that we make those commitments. You know, it's important that we we pray when we're sitting in a stoplight, when we're in a conversation with someone and it's difficult and we need wisdom. All of those things are crucial. 
But it's also important that we intentionally, structurally build prayer into our lives. And for me, that was one of the most helpful ideas that I was ever given, is that we have to, like our Lord, we have to make prayer an intentional habit. And the only way to do that is to decide, as David did, as Daniel did, as our Lord did, to build those times structurally into each day. So wherever that fits for you, I would urge you to consider how you're going to do that. Thanks, Tom. And friend, we want to let you know that Tom has a new book out titled The God Who Hears, a book of pastoral prayers. It features 31 scripture readings and accompanying pastoral prayers. Tom's book is available for purchase right now online at thewordunleash.org. As always, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And remember to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do that by visiting thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory explaining God's truth.